Hey ladies, it's Bridget Todd here. As women, we put our hearts into everything. May is High Blood Pressure Education Month, and it's time to focus on our heart health. Release the Pressure wants to help Black women look at self-care as an act of self-preservation. During High Blood Pressure Education Month, let's help get to our goal of 100,000 Black women putting their hearts first and learn more about their heart health. Visit iHeartRadio.com RTP for a chance to receive a $1,000 gift card to take care of yourself and prioritize your heart health. That's iHeartRadio.com RTP. My dad works in B2B marketing, but I never really knew what that meant. Then one day, my dad came by my school for career day and told everyone in my class he was a big MQL man. Then he just kept saying things like, the more MQLs, the better, over and over. My friends still laugh at me to this day. I think it means marketing qualified lead. One thing's for sure. I'll be known as the MQL man's kid for the rest of my days. Why couldn't you just be a fireman or a lawyer? Why? You ruined my life, Dad. Not everyone gets B2B, but LinkedIn has the people who do. And with ads on LinkedIn, you'll be able to reach people based on job title, industry, likelihood to buy, and more. Start converting your B2B audience into high-quality leads today. We'll even give you $100 credit on your next ad campaign. Go to linkedin.com slash customer to claim your credit. That's linkedin.com slash customer. Terms and conditions apply. LinkedIn, the place to be, to be. Happy Pride from Tomboy X. We just dropped our Pride 24 collection. Queer founded, queer run, and creating size and gender inclusive underwear, swimwear, and loungewear for all bodies. So you feel comfortable in your own skin. Visit tomboyx.com to shop. Your whole job is to be about like, empathizing with the human experience enough to be able to tell a a story that resonates with people and yet like here's a real human being going like hey hey (laughs) i'm over here call me and no dms are open (laughs) dms are open like there are no girls on the internet is a production of iHeartRadio and unbossed creative I'm Bridget Todd, and this is There Are No Girls on the Internet. I spend an inordinate amount of time thinking about the internet and how we show up on it. Can we share parts of ourselves online? What gets lost? By now you know the drill that nobody's online presence tells the full story of who they are. We're all creating a digital highlight reel, and none of it is really real. But what about the ways the internet itself flattens out who we are and the full scope of our humanity? When you're viewing them through a screen, it's easy to see people as one-dimensional caricatures, distortions of who they really are. And if you think about your own online experience, I'm sure you felt this one way or another. Now, imagine what that would be like as an exoneree, exonerated for a high-profile crime of which you were falsely accused. That's Amanda Knox's reality. Amanda Knox's name is still synonymous with a crime that she did not commit the murder of her roommate, Meredith Kircher, by Rudy Goudet in Italy in 2007. Amanda spent almost four years in prison before being acquitted in 2015. Since her release from prison, Amanda has worked to change the conversation around the criminal justice system and the people caught up in it through writing, advocacy, and her podcast, Labyrinths. But in an online landscape that profits from distorting people according to the most salacious stories attached to them, true or not, Amanda continues to be flattened into a foxy noxy caricature, the same caricature that led to her being locked up for a crime that she didn't commit. 
Understandably, Amanda is particular about what parts of herself she shares with the internet. For instance, concerned her story would become fodder for tabloids and online trolls, Amanda and her husband Chris waited to reveal to the world they were expecting their first child until she was already born. Soon after I gave birth, and of course I didn't immediately tell the world that I had given birth because I was, I didn't want to emotionally and psychologically navigate the difficulty of tackling how the internet and how the broader world was going to react to my daughter um, in those first weeks of having given birth. Like I just needed to like be chill and secret and hidden and no one to know. But of course, that means that no one knows and I still have to keep doing my job and responding to the world as if I don't have a two-week-old baby (laughs) that's keeping me up at night and who's suckling on me constantly. (laughs) I loved how you chronicled your um, journey to become parents on Instagram. Did it have the desired effect you were looking for? Like, like, revealing it in that way where by the time you were like, oh, we're expecting your child was actually already here. Was it, <laughs> did it have the desired effects of just giving you all a little more space to not have to wonder how the internet would react to this, this change in your life? Yeah. And then it also did um, a sort of, I, I sort of did a bait and switch kind of thing. Like I was, um, when I was doing, when I was sort of revealing on a daily basis, like week per week photos on my Instagram it was sort of like giving that sense to my my followers, but also to like the greater Internet in general, because, of course, I know that the tabloids are constantly scanning my Instagram in order to like steal, you know, photos of me and strip them of context and then vilify me. Like I was anticipating this um, and sort of addressing directly this feeling of like anticipation and wanting more and wanting like acknowledging that like. As I'm getting bigger and bigger, it's very human and natural to be like, oh, my God, the baby's next, the baby's next. And then my goal at the very end of it was to show one image of my child and explain why I was not going to be sharing any other photos with of her on the Internet because of how I knew both the Internet to be a, a thing that maybe you should opt into instead of automatically put into by your parents but also because of how much my own social media and internet life has been mined for content and mined for exploitation by tabloids. Um, and I did not want to, to sort of offer my own daughter on a platter. And so I wanted to like give the sense of like, yes, we're, we're all in it together and we all are really excited, but also this is why I'm sort of withholding something from you. And I was hoping to like make a point Um, by revealing my pregnancy that way. Yeah. I mean, what is it like to be Amanda Knox on the internet? Like, what is that experience like for you? Well, um, it means that I am in, you know, when I came home from prison after I was first acquitted, I knew that I was walking into a world where there would be a version of me in people's minds, no matter what. Like, that's just a reality. Um, people heard of Foxy Noxy now. They have a very clear idea of who I am, except it's not who I am. And so I'm going to be perpetually in conversation with that like prejudice about me that as I'm walking through the world. And it made me acutely aware of how much my identity as it had been constructed, especially in the digital space, was not actually a product of my own making. And 
I think this honestly is very, very true of everyone. We all aren't totally the authors of our identities, especially online. Um, We like to think, I think we have this like false sense of security that like, oh, my Instagram feed is my own. And oh, you know, when I present myself online, I'll, people will understand what I mean when I say a thing. And the reality is that's not true. And we all are facing certain kinds of prejudices as we encounter people, especially across the distance of the internet. As much as it brings us us close, it also keeps us distant from each other because we're not physically there. Um, And so I feel like I have a unique perspective of like, I I feel like I have, because I've been such like pushed to such extremes through the internet that like utterly vilified and also like totally reached out to by people like total random strangers who just say, oh my gosh, I'm so inspired by what you went through and how you've dealt with it. Like I have, I have personally felt all like, and pushed against all of the edges of the internet and the way that it works. So I feel like I appreciate in a sort of fine tuned way, how the internet works and how much of myself and therefore everyone else is a construct of these like interplaying, you know, impulses and um, and that sense of ownership that really, really we have a false sense of ownership of ourselves online and we really don't own ourselves online. Actually, there's um, a really interesting. Did you um, hear about the the woman who was an artist um, and she had like, you know, as an artist does, she has an Instagram account. I think it was called the metaverse. Her Instagram account was called metaverse, right? And like Facebook decided, oh, we're the metaverse now. So we're just going to delete you. (laughs) (laughs) And they have that power, which like, again, reinforces that sense of like, well, do we own ourselves on the internet? Do we own ourselves on the internet? So W.E.B. Du Bois has this concept of double consciousness whereby Black folks experience consciousness in two distinct ways at once. The way that we understand and see ourselves, and the way that we are aware of being seen by a white supremacist society. And I've always felt this concept was really useful, not just in navigating the IRL world, but in navigating my own online experiences as well. When I share myself online, I'm very aware that it's a convergence of two consciousnesses, who I actually am and who people are perceiving me to be. I don't even really consider my online persona to be me. I think of her as my avatar, a stand-in for my digital experiences completely distinct from the real me. I spend a lot of time thinking about our digital experiences and the experience of showing up online and just what that's like for us. And I often refer to my online self as my avatar. You know, I don't even see her as really myself. I see her as a stand-in. And so I can only imagine what that experience is like for you as a person who has been vilified and really turned into a caricature, how you might feel that there are these all these different competing versions of yourself out in the world. But at the same time, really knowing, you know, this isn't me, like having this composite sketch version of yourself, that of, of what people see you as, all these different projections of, of, of people's understandings of who you are or who they want you to be or need you to be. When I was preparing for this interview, I was reading some headlines and there was this one tabloid story that had clearly taken a picture of you and your husband, maybe when you were out at a party or something. And there are so many pictures of you and your husband that anybody could use to accompany a story about you. But they had clearly gone out of their way to choose a picture where y'all were at a party 
to kind of add to this media-created idea that y'all were weird. You know, it's like they went out of their way to say, look at these two. Aren't they weird? Look at this weird picture. But it's like they chose the picture. This is obviously something that you wanted to use to create, to tell the story that you were trying to sell. And that story was, these two are weirdos. And for you, it must be so difficult to retain and protect your sense of self when there are so many forces out there projecting all of these competing, negative, out-of-context versions of who they think you are or who they want you to be or need you to be. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, it's true, especially because, and I think this is true of other people as well, like it's not like it just limits itself to the internet space. Like it definitely has repercussions in my actual real life. It It makes it so that it's difficult for me to make friends or to get a regular job. Like these are all ways that the stigma of whatever that person that uh, that idea of me that's in someone else's mind impacts me on a on an actual level. Like I actually went to prison because people were, uh, you know, cherry picking um, moments of my life and portraying them in the worst possible light. And like I went to actual prison for that. So like and, you know, to to this day, you know, I'm not being put in a jail cell because of people talking badly about me on the Internet and portraying me as a weird person. But it does mean that, you know, if I go and take a meeting with someone, I'm wondering, are they taking a meeting with me because they want to see how weird I am? Or they want to, you know, or are they actually seriously interested in my professional work? Do they even know about my professional work? Because, of course, the tabloids are really happy to tell stories about me going to parties, but they don't ever talk about the work that I do because that doesn't go with their story. Right? So I don't know, like it's made me acutely aware of how powerful storytelling is. And it's made me think about like, well, who is allowed to tell stories and what what stories are they telling us? And how are we complicit in them, the, the choices they are making as storytellers in selling us a product? Let's take a quick break. Hey, ladies, it's Bridget Todd here. May is High Blood Pressure Education Month. It is crucial for us, especially as Black women, to focus on our heart health. We pour our heart and soul into every aspect of our lives, but often our own health takes a back seat. That's where Release the Pressure comes in. It's all about us, Black women, seeing self-care as an essential act of self-preservation. Whether it's for yourself, your family, or your community, your health is invaluable. Let's help get to our goal of 100,000 Black women putting their hearts first and learn more about their heart health. Here's how you can join in. Head to iHeartRadio.com slash RTP for a chance to receive a $1,000 gift card to take care of yourself and prioritize your heart health. Let's make our health a priority. Visit iHeartRadio.com slash RTP today. Together, we can make a difference in our health and our lives. Join us and let's take care of our hearts together. So in 2024, one of my goals is to finally get serious about my finances. It's been kind of a big emotional thing for me. Thinking about money historically has caused me a lot of anxiety and stress because I have a lot of trauma related to money. And if you can relate, if that sounds like you, check out Fearless Finance. Fearless Finance provides on-demand, comprehensive financial planning by the hour. It's a new way to get financial advice without all the headaches, high fees, and commitments. 
that come with traditional financial advisors. Fearless finance planners don't sell anything. No used car salesman vibe here. And that means no concerns about being sold something just for the commission that it earns a rep. Their planners meet you where you are on your financial journey. No judgment. Whether you're looking to buy a house, optimize your savings, or just want to make sure your finances are okay, they can answer your questions and help you achieve your goals. No question is too small. No problem is too big. Fearless Finance is making financial advice more affordable and accessible. You meet with your planner virtually, and they charge by the hour. Visit fearlessfinance.com today to get started. You can chat with a planner for free to make sure it's a good fit. And you'll get $50 off your first planning meeting when you use code GIRLS. Y'all know I love the internet, but a sad truth about it is that it can be a scary place, especially for women, people of color, and trans folks. We've talked to people on this podcast, whistleblowers, activists, and advocates who are making technology safer, who then become targets for doing that work. But the truth is, it can happen to any of us online. That's why I personally use and recommend Delete Me. Delete Me finds and removes any personal information you don't want online and makes sure it stays off. Sign up and provide Delete Me with exactly what information you want deleted, and their experts take it from there. Take control of your data and keep your private life private by signing up for Delete Me, now at a special discount for our listeners. Today, get 20% off your Delete Me plan when you go to joindeleteme.com slash nogirls and use promo code nogirls at checkout. The only way to get 20% off is to go to joindeleteme.com slash nogirls and enter code nogirls at checkout. That's joindeleteme.com slash nogirls code nogirls. And we're back. Last year, Amanda spoke out about the film Stillwater, which stars Matt Damon as a father who travels to Europe to see his daughter, who has been in prison for the murder of her roommate and lover in France. There's going to be a spoiler for the film in just a moment. Director Tom McCarthy said he was, quote, inspired by Amanda's experience. I was pretty fascinated with the Amanda Knox case back a long time ago and did a pretty deep dive into it. Okay, so here's the spoiler. In the film, the character inspired by Amanda is revealed to have been withholding relevant information about the murder that she has not shared with authorities, that she paid the man who actually killed her roommate and told him to get rid of her. But it was a miscommunication. She meant to throw her out of the apartment, not murder her. Amanda says this isn't so much a fictionalization as it is trafficking in a specific falsehood that still persists all these years later. That even if she didn't actually kill Meredith Kircher, she must have been involved in some way. On Medium, in a piece called Who Owns My Name, Amanda writes, I continue to be accused of knowing something I'm not revealing, of having been involved even if I didn't plunge the knife. So Tom McCarthy's fictionalized version of me is just the tabloid, conspiracy, guiltier version of me. By fictionalizing away my innocence, my total lack of involvement, by erasing the role of the authorities and my wrongful conviction, McCarthy reinforces an image of me as a guilty and untrustworthy person. And with Matt Damon's star power, both are sure to profit handsomely off of this fictionalization of the Amanda Knox saga. That is sure to leave plenty of viewers wondering, maybe the real-life Amanda was involved somehow. Yeah, I mean, that was one of the reasons I was so interested to talk to you today. Um, your tweets about the film Stillwater, you know, I had never really thought about the idea of profit, right? So who, not just who is telling someone else's story, but who is making money off of it? And it seems mm -hmm. to me that so many different Hollywood executives and actors, et cetera, et cetera, are, it's okay for them to tell this like deeply fictionalized story about, that purports to be about your life and make money from it. And it's like everyone else, it seems like everyone else is allowed 
to a tell your story and then profit from it except for you you know what is that Mm -hmm. like to to experience well it's so surreal that most people just assume that i am profiting off it right like the number of people who reach out to me to be like oh congratulations on stillwater so great that you're getting another project and it's like nope Nope, no one, uh, no one talked to me about that. <laughs> like, I have nothing to do with that. And um, no, I, I am in no way benefiting from it. In fact, I am just bearing the cost of whatever story they liked to tell about me this time. So. And, yeah. you know, thinking about the Netflix documentary, you, this is something that I thought was so interesting where the filmmakers reached out to you and they said, we are not inter- we only want to tell this story if you are part of that storytelling process i could imagine folks coming to you and saying listen we're going to tell this story whether you want me to tell it or not so you got to decide whether we're telling it for you or if you're going to be a participant it, it almost kind of feels like a shakedown you know when it's like oh it totally is <laughs> how, how can we get to a place where like you're not being shaken down to be forced to participate against your will in a story that is meant to be about you. I mean, I just like, I can't even imagine what that must be like to experience and how difficult that must be to navigate. Yeah. And and again, it's not just a thing that happens to me. Like it happens to a lot of people, a lot of like, you know, exonerees, wrongfully convicted people come out of prison and they're told, if you don't tell your story right now to us, like you're never going to have another chance and no one's ever going to believe you. And of course, you're walking out of prison. You know, you've been exonerated, but you're still carrying the stigma of the accusation. You still are trying to, like, figure out how to get back on your feet. And you like to be put on the spot and asked to process the worst experience of your life for someone else's entertainment product is and like the I, I guess like what I was hoping to do by writing that essay for The Atlantic and, you know, doing like the tweets about Stillwater in particular was because I wanted to point out that this is a way that we are treating real human beings without. And I don't know if the people who are doing it realize what the human cost is because they're in their own little like echo chamber. Journalists are in their echo chamber and they're thinking, well, I have to get the scoop. And if I don't get the scoop now, I'm going to move on to the next story and try to get that scoop. Or the, you know, the, the Hollywood filmmakers are thinking, oh, well, I'm just going to like be inspired by something that happened in real life. And then I'm just going to let the writer's room do what it does. And that's just how stories are made. And and why would someone who is my inspiration feel any kind of ownership over that? It's my art. And it's like, well, did you did you pause to think how this was going to impact the human being who is your purported source or inspiration? Like, do you as a storyteller, as someone who is sharing information, oh, the person who is the source of that inspiration or your story, anything. And that's a, that's a question. Like, I'm asking the question and I'm offering a new perspective, which is, well, maybe you didn't think about this before, but here's how it's impacted me. Here's how when you keep telling a story over and over and over again about a girl on girl sex crime you are actually misrepresenting what happened to my roommate who was raped and murdered by a man and me who had no part in a girl on girl sex crime. So do you do you understand that when you keep telling that story over and over again, that is what ends up being the definitive story about me, whether you intended that or not? 
And do you understand that that's also what's happening to people who are even more disempowered than me? Because I can't tell you the number of people that I've tried to um, advise and who've reached out to me saying there's only one person who's ever interested, like been interested in my story. And I don't know if I trust them. Should I trust them? Is this my only chance to tell my story? I don't know if I'm ready yet, but they're telling me that I have to do it tomorrow. And if I don't do it, like these are all huge red flags for me that are just showing how like other people's lives are being taken from them in various different ways. And the last thing I want to see for someone who's just spent years in prison for something they didn't do is for them to feel like, oh, now my story is being stolen again from me, but in a whole new way. We owe exonerees and the wrongfully convicted so much better. Like they deserve so much better than as soon as they're out being put in these situations where they can be, I mean, they're already so vulnerable. They deserve, they don't deserve this. And I, mm -hmm. I, I have to, I mean, do you think it's possible to have a different kind of media landscape for exonerees where, where they don't feel like they have to immediately continuously retell this traumatic thing that happened to them or else, you know, maybe the tabloids will make up their own story about what happened, you know? Do, do, you, right. do you believe in a world where a different kind of landscape is possible for these folks? I mean, sure, I'm trying to invent it along the way. <laughs> um, but I think that, like, the thing that I'm sort of experimenting with with my own journalism and my own podcast, Labyrinths, is this sort of more, like, collaborative experience between the storyteller and their subject. Because I think that there's been this longstanding perspective that if you are at the center of your own story, you can't have a storyteller's perspective of that story. Like you, you, you can't have authorship over your own story because you're going to be biased or you're going to misrepresent things and, I, and you can't be objective. But first of all, I want to point out that the storyteller is not by definition objective. Just because they aren't personally in the story doesn't mean that by telling the story they aren't putting themselves in the story and they aren't approaching that story from a certain perspective. And it's also totally discrediting the idea that someone who's at the center of their own story might have a valuable perspective about it. Like they might, having had felt this human experience firsthand, have some interesting human things to say that is worth being a part of the story. And so I'm just trying to like convey that yeah, not all of us are, are professional storytellers, but professional storytellers can help people tell their own stories. And of course, everyone should be held accountable to the truth. Like as long as we're not like making up crazy, you know, conspiracy theories to account for non-evidence, like, you know, evidence still matters and the truth still matters. But it's OK for you to give like as a storyteller, to offer someone the opportunity to voice their own experience. And that's still a valuable story. Oh, absolutely. You know, we're all experts in our own experiences. And I, I hate this myth of objectivity that if you're close to a story or if it's happening to you or to, to your community, you couldn't possibly be objective. I feel like it's really, at least in, in journalism, I feel like it's really been used to create a really like 
sexist, racist, classist narrative that like, oh, it is straight white men who are objective. Everybody else is just going to be biased. You shouldn't even listen. Like, they're not going to be a reliable source of something that happened to them or their community. And it just really erases (laughs) the fact that like people know what's up with themselves. People know people are Mm -hmm. like give people the space to be experts in their own experiences and their own stories. And don't pretend that you don't have your own baggage that you're bringing to the story by who being whoever you are. (laughs) Exactly. You know, so just take ownership of like be self-aware, like do enough like self-auditing to be aware that maybe I might be approaching this story or that story from a certain perspective and let that be like acknowledge that in your own storytelling process. And as you are encountering the person, because they might be coming from a whole completely new perspective that you don't have access to. And if you are automatically defining yourself as the objective party and them as the subjective party, you are automatically making a, like doing a hierarchy of whose prejudice and whose bias counts more than another's. I find it interesting that your story is not often framed as a story of someone who was wrongfully convicted and then exonerated, right? I think there's probably so many people out there who like, think they know the Amanda Knox story, you know, heavy scare quotes, but they probably, (laughs) you know, don't know Meredith Kircher's name. They probably don't know the name of the Italian prosecutors who like bungled this case. They don't know the name of the actual guilty party. And it's just so interesting to me how what you went through, obviously, you like was a huge part of your life. But the way that that story is told often, I don't know, it, 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 at the same time, denies agency of the actual major players of what happened to your roommate, while also giving you this like outsized role in that story. It's like, like, why aren't why aren't these other hugely like huge major parties of what happened? Why are they not household names? Why are they not the names that are like connected to what happened there? Why is it just you who like actually was kind of a like, like side character and all of that? Yeah, that's one of the things that I've always like pushed back against with people is like when you when you think Amanda Knox, the first thing that you think of is murder, because that's you know, that's ultimately what it comes down to. Amanda Knox, murder. And my like I have never witnessed a murder. I've never participated in murder. I've never been, you know, the the closest I've been to murder is I Maybe what could have been murdered that night if I hadn't met Raffaele five days earlier and was spending the night at his house. Like that's that's my experience of murder. And the fact that that action, that horrific action that that happened to, first of all, my friend Meredith, who is the victim and people don't remember her. The fact that that action is not actually prescribed to her murderer. And instead, people think of me when they think of her murder. That just goes to show that it really does matter what you call a thing. And when you call Meredith Kircher's murder the Amanda Knox saga, you are doing a disservice to the truth because I played no role in that. My The Amanda Knox saga for me is I'm on trial for something I didn't do. And now I'm trying to like reclaim my life in a world that doesn't want me to reclaim my life. <laughs> you know, like that's that's my experience. Um, but like it, I it drives me crazy that it's it's so, so often that the person who actually committed this crime is referred to as an afterthought. Like 
he's either not named at all. He's called the other guy who was accused, you know, whatever. <laughs> like no one cares about that. And it's and to me, that conveys that, like, people don't actually really care about what happened to Meredith. They care about the scandal and they care about the the sexiness that they can, you know, portray, you know, project onto like the, the sexy idea is what resonates with people more than the actual human experience. Yeah. And I just, I, I, it's impossible to not see all the ways that you've become this character. So either it's like, she's weird or she's like a American loudmouth or like a temptress. It's like, you kind of become this thing that this character that anybody can project whatever they want onto. And it doesn't like, who you actually are as a human who went through something traumatic is just gone in the conversation. Yeah. Yeah. And, and then, you know, even when I'm, you know, it's found out that I'm innocent and I'm, I'm held fully innocent. Um, the, again, that like mystique of who is Amanda Knox really, it's like, well, here's an idea. Like I have a podcast where I talk really openly about all my ideas and all my experiences have you considered listening to that? No, no, of course not. Because then Amanda is actually authoring her own experience. We want to talk about her. We don't actually want to talk to her. <laughs> and it's it's just like, I mean, you aren't, obviously. You're talking to me. And I, I greatly appreciate that. Because honestly, like, what a freaking gift in the world to just talk to another human being like a real person. Like, I can't tell you enough how much it means to me that you reach out to me and say, I actually care about what your experience is. I, you know, I don't want to just talk about you. I want to talk to you. Like, thank you for that. Well, it means a lot. I mean, I, I deeply appreciate that. I really do. But again, like when the Stillwater conversation was happening, I think something that was so frustrating is it's not like you're not like you. Yeah, you have a great podcast that's critically acclaimed. You have a huge body of work. The fact that they wouldn't even reach out to you, like I just randomly DM'd you on Twitter and you replied. It's not like it was hard. Mm -hmm. I'm one person nope. who makes a podcast <laughs> out of my kitchen, right? It's not like you're making it difficult to find yourself or, and it's not, it's not like you're not having these public conversations about who you are and your story and your experience. And I think it is, people just don't want to hear it. it. It's, it's more gratifying to talk about you than it is to give you space to talk about your experiences. And, and I think that's so clear. I don't think people, I, I just think that people are just really wrapped up in the story they have in their head and retelling that over and over again. And I really appreciated that you pointed out that that film, they weren't just fictionalizing it. You, they were kind of parroting the, the salacious, you know, girl on girl sex crime, like, lie that that was told to to have you locked up for so many years and that's not apolitical that's not neutral that's not fictionalizing something that was not like it's different to i guess i feel like the fact that they relied on what was the dominant narrative that led to you being falsely imprisoned is so hurtful but also like deeply political and not neutral like that's a real choice and to not even acknowledge or deal with that again is a real you know, a, just a real choice. Like, like that did, I, I guess I didn't like how in that interview, I think it was Matt Damon. He was like, oh, well, you know, we got to thinking like, what if it was like this? And it's like, no, you just, you just parroted the incorrect lie that led to you being falsely imprisoned. 
Yeah, no, they, they it was just lazy storytelling on their part. Like they were like, oh, we're inventing things. And it's like, you didn't invent shit, my friend. <laughs> like, no. Good job. You invented France as opposed to Italy. Like, good job. <laughs> yeah, it's lazy. It's lazy. It's lazy. It's lazy. Yeah. And it's too bad because like, honestly, again, my position in all of this has been I'm really easy to talk to. And I'm actually like, I think we could have a really worthwhile conversation here. I, I feel like maybe I was overlooked, but like, here's an opportunity to not overlook me. And that's OK. Like, let's talk about that. And nothing. Just crickets. Still today? Um, nothing? Oh, yeah. Nothing. Nothing. Yeah. It, it, you know, they're they've moved on to the next story and it doesn't matter that there are repercussions in my life. So. Yeah. I mean, it's just insane. Like how like how removed do you have like you're a storyteller. Your, your whole job is to be about like empathizing with the human experience enough to be able to tell a, a story that resonates with people. And yet, like, here's a real human being going like, hey, hey, <laughs> I'm over here. Call me. And no, DMs are open. <laughs> DMs are open. Like. I'm really nice. <laughs> I don't know. It's it's um it's a fascinating experience and I feel like again it's it seems like it's this weird extreme thing because it's not every day that, you know, someone's life is turned into a Hollywood movie, but I feel like there are versions of this that happen all the time to people all the time. What story is being told about you and what circumstance by whom and how are they not allowing you to be a part of the conversation like that? That happens all the time to lots of people. And it's something that I always have a little bit of a red flag for because it just seems like it's it's one. of It's it's gaslighting. Honestly, it's when you're not allowed to have a voice in the story that defines who you are, it you basically are being told by the rest of the world that you don't you don't matter and your perspective doesn't matter. And we're going to tell you who you are and what you mean and why you matter. More after a quick break. Hey, ladies, it's Bridget Todd here. May is High Blood Pressure Education Month. It is crucial for us, especially as Black women, to focus on our heart health. We pour our heart and soul into every aspect of our lives, but often our own health takes a back seat. That's where Release the Pressure comes in. It's all about us, Black women, seeing self-care as an essential act of self-preservation. Whether it's for yourself, your family, or your community, your health is invaluable. Let's help get to our goal of 100,000 Black women putting their hearts first and learn more about their heart health. Here's how you can join in. Head to iHeartRadio.com RTP for a chance to receive a $1,000 gift card to take care of yourself and prioritize your heart health. Let's make our health a priority. Visit iHeartRadio.com RTP today. Together, we can make a difference in our health and our lives. Join us and let's take care of our hearts together. So in 2024, one of my goals is to finally get serious about my finances. It's been kind of a big emotional thing for me. Thinking about money historically has caused me a lot of anxiety and stress because I have a lot of trauma related to money. And if you can relate, if that sounds like you, check out Fearless Finance. 
Fearless Finance provides on-demand comprehensive financial planning by the hour. It's a new way to get financial advice without all the headaches, high fees, and commitments that come with traditional financial advisors. Fearless Finance planners don't sell anything. No used car salesman vibe here. And that means no concerns about being sold something just for the commission that it earns a rep. Their planners meet you where you are on your financial journey. No judgment. Whether you're looking to buy a house, optimize your savings, or just want to make sure your finances are okay, they can answer your questions and help you achieve your goals. No question is too small. No problem is too big. Fearless Finance is making financial advice more affordable and accessible. You meet with your planner virtually, and they charge by the hour. Visit fearlessfinance.com today to get started. You can chat with a planner for free to make sure it's a good fit. And you'll get $50 off your first planning meeting when you use code GIRLS. Happy Pride from Tomboy X. We just dropped our Pride 24 collection. Queer founded, queer run, and creating size and gender inclusive underwear, swimwear, and loungewear for all bodies. So you feel comfortable in your own skin. Visit TomboyX.com to shop. Let's get right back into it. Who gets to have a say in their own story? In a media moment where we're looking back on the way that women from Pamela Anderson to Monica Lewinsky were unfairly maligned by society, it's a question worth asking. And I first reached out to Amanda because I saw her tweets about the New York Times documentary Framing Britney Spears. Now, she wasn't condemning the film or the filmmakers, but rather posing a complex question. She tweeted, With all these new Britney Spears documentaries out, I'm asking myself, did Britney participate in any of them? Did she consent to them? Did she want them to exist? Does anyone care? The answer to the first two questions is no. She did not participate or grant her approval. And while I'm sure the documentary filmmakers would have preferred that she gave them her approval, when she didn't, they plowed ahead anyway. Is that okay? She goes on to say, I'd like to live in a world where Britney and Britney alone gets to decide if she wants her personal legal drama to serve as your next Netflix binge. When filmmakers Rod Blackhurst and Brian McGinn reached out to Amanda about making a Netflix documentary, they said they would only go through with the film if she participated. And it's a big part of why she agreed to do it in the first place. They had the ethical sense to understand that I would be deeply impacted by that film and that my consent and participation mattered. They decided it was better to make no film than one without me, she tweeted. When I first reached out to you, I was in the process of researching an episode for the podcast about the Free Britney movement. And when I saw mm. your tweets, it really, I, so I stopped my research because <laughs> one of the points that you made was, you know, hey, this documentary was made without Britney Spears' consent. And I really had to, ha to really have a deep think about what that meant, right? Like, I was very mm -hmm. happy that Britney Spears' conservatorship was overturned. I was happy to see the role that that documentary maybe played and some, and some like public awareness of it. But sure. I never even thought to ask, what does it mean that this, that this content was just released without her say, without her voice, against her will? And I think we're in this moment where there are so many different pieces of media asking us to look back to how women were maligned, you know. And I guess I wonder, like, what does it mean that so many of those, you know, documentaries, podcasts, what have you, are created about the, about a woman without her side of the story, without her voice, and then sometimes against her will? Like, like what do we do mm -hmm. with that? How do we find a balance to be like, oh, well, maybe it's good that this documentary helped her overturn her conservatorship, but 
it's also fucked up that it happened against her will. Like, isn't that just another way of violating someone who's already been like so maligned and violated? Yeah. Yeah. Like, did did Britney ultimately want her, you know, her like family drama to be so public um, because like she didn't get a choice in that. Right. Um, did it make a difference in her trial? Is she grateful to all the people who supported her? Of course. Um, but it is interesting to me. And I, th- and I think it is, again, one of those moments where it's worth pausing and asking, like, wait, what is her perspective in all of this? Like, since everything is going to be impacting her the most, shouldn't she have some kind of say? And, um, and, you know, I'd be curious to know, like, how Brittany feels today about the fact that there were documentaries made without her consent. And yet they played, a, you know, a supportive role towards her. Like, that's an interesting, you know, mental space to be in, in terms of like, over the course of your own life, again, there's it's but again, it's almost like a hint of that conservatorship, right? Like, we know what's good for you. So we're going to do it even if you don't want us to. Like, ooh, it, it's just, uh, it hurts me. <laughs> it's, it's, a, it's, a weird, it's like a weird thing to have to unpack, right? And mm-hmm. I guess I, I'm, I want to see more public, like, media makers wrestling with it. Because I feel mm-hmm. like, yes, it's a complicated square to circle but yep. I I want to I want to see that you're that you're aware of this you know aware of this dichotomy as a thing that exists and a thing that we should be asking yeah. questions about and pushing up against. Exactly. I think that if there were that again, it's that like self auditing, that introspection, that awareness that you could have that your actions could have unintended consequences, and that you are thinking about the people who like you know, you presumably, if you're a documentary filmmaker who's making a documentary about Britney, you can presumably assume that whatever it is that you end up doing is going to impact her. <laughs> so, like, maybe think about how and why and and how you can mitigate potential harm, because that's what you don't want to do as a as a storyteller. You don't want to just harm other people for the sake of a story. I mean, at least I would hope so. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and I mean, I think in this moment where we're really interested in like looking back at the way that me- the way that media, our media ecosystem harmed women unfairly. I, I, I So I, full disclosure, live for a like you're wrong about style podcast as like, oh, let's go back and like revisit. But part of <laughs> me wonders if we are so busy looking back that we're not seeing mm. the ways that's happening now. Like, OK. Mm. Britney Spears was un- was unfairly maligned. You were unfairly maligned. Janet Jackson unfairly maligned. All these people. But are we, are we, like, what's the point of that kind of content if it does not prime us to see it happening before our eyes in real time? Like, I don't want to have to wait five years down the line for the podcast that right. tells us not, that the media shouldn't be profiting off of the pain and, you know, shittiness to, like, a vulnerable person. I don't want to have to wait for a look back retrospective on that. What's the point of this media if it doesn't allow us to do this now? That's a really great point. And I think that that is that is another way that if we are going to be spending time looking back, because I I think it's a worthwhile thing to do. Let's not do it just for a sake of like nostalgia. We can all feel good about ourselves today 
because we're not doing that like they did in the 90s. Like that, it, there's the danger of it approximating that where it's like, oh man, we were terrible to women in the 90s. We can feel total, we can pat ourselves on the back today. There is nothing wrong with the way that we're treating women today because look at what we did in the 90s. Like it's important to to take stock of how things were, how things have changed, but also how things haven't changed. And if we can see echoes of what happened in the past happening today and and try to be better. Definitely. I mean, this brings me to one of my last questions. You know, mm-hmm. what kind of world, like just given what we know about how the media and the internet can treat women, what kind of world do you want for your daughter to grow up in? And like, what, what will you tell her about your life? And what will you tell her about the kinds of li- the kinds of experiences that she can expect from the world? Mm. Yeah. Well, what I'm hoping that we're heading towards is a world where everyone is more media literate and understands not just how the industry functions, like how how does it even just how do you on a day to day basis put content out into the world? Like, well, there are you know there are incentive structures and there's a a monetary aspect to it. And like, there's a whole business side of it. That's important to know when you're consuming information. Um, There's a human psychological role to it. Like what stories quote resonate with people and with whom and why, why do certain stories get uplifted and others get squashed? Why are some people's stories just, you know, discarded as if they aren't valuable and other people's are constantly uh, in the headlines? Like, these are all really important questions that I think as consumers we should be asking because we as consumers ultimately have the power to say, you know what, I'm not going to tune into your style of content anymore. I'm going to tune into something else that I think is more uh, responsible or ethical or truthful um, and that that's worthwhile. Um, so I hope that that's the world that we're, we're gearing towards. Because as social media has democratized content creation, we all feel like we can have a hand not just in consuming media, but also in producing it. Um, That's my hope. Um, I don't know if that's actually going to happen, but um, I'm hoping that I'm going to let my daughter sort of take the lead in in how much she wants to know and how important my experience is going to be for her. Because one thing that I'm worried about is her feeling like, you know, as much as I feel very much in the shadow of the worst experience of my life, like I don't want her to feel like she's forced to live in the shadow of the worst experience of my life. Um, she should be able to have her own life if she wants. And if and I I hope to raise her as a very curious, thoughtful person. And so I my guess is that she's going to be curious. And of course, if she's going to be coming to the Innocence Network conference with me every year, meeting other wrongfully convicted people like she's going to start to notice that (laughs) that there's a uh, there's an interesting pattern happening here. Like, oh, you were in jail. You were in jail. Why has everyone been in jail? (laughs) You know, she's going to notice and she's going to ask questions. And I, I think I'm going to be honest with her 100% of the time, always answer her questions. Um, but of course I'm not going to like give a six-year-old, a, a tutorial on crime scene footage, <laughs> you know, like, wait till she's seven. so <laughs> yeah, I'll wait till she's seven when we're all, that's, that's the appropriate age. <laughs> so yeah, I think that like, 
I want her to feel like she it's not a taboo subject. It's absolutely like anything about me and my experiences on the table for her should she need it and want it. Um, but that she doesn't need to feel like it needs to be an important part of her life. Because honestly, like no one's trauma, no one should feel like they are bound to their trauma as if it's the most important thing in their life either. So I think that's another important thing. Yeah, that's such a good point. There are so many interesting pieces of who you are that like, that's just one of Mm -hmm. a quilt of who you are. And, you know, thinking about your daughter, you've written so beautifully about sort of long prison sentences and for you, how it was a kind of like forced infertility. Do you see criminal justice and reproductive justice as like linked in that way? Absolutely. And I think that nobody's noticing that. Um, I mean, and it's and it's hard for like the it's hard for men too, right. Like, it, sure, men are no are not limited in that way. Like they don't have a very specific window when they're fertile, but they do have a very specific window when they're capable of forming the kinds of relationships that would turn into families even. And so, like, for me, I think that especially with the way that there are prison sentences in this country where they just are nonsensically long, like no one should be sentenced to 300 years in prison. Like it just doesn't make any like just just be reasonable. Like let's let's consider what the sentence is going to mean for an actual human being's life and take that into consideration when we're thinking about sentencing. And I think that the ways that women have sort of been pushed into a justice system that was built by and for men and their needs and 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 physical realities aren't really taken into consideration in that process is an incredible disservice to and an incredible harm that we're committing as a society like it it matters that by sentencing someone to such a long amount of time you are effectively limiting not just their freedom but so much more about their life that is fundamental to being a human being. Um, like, I, I never should have faced the prospect of never getting to have a family of my own for because I was accused of a crime I didn't commit. And yet I did. Well, Amanda, thank you for using this platform to speak up for other wrongfully convicted folks. And even rightfully convicted folks, because like here, the other reality is like a lot of the women that I met in prison, they did commit crimes. They were also victims of crime before they ever committed crimes. And how is it that society had let them fall through the cracks and had refused them good opportunities to be productive people and just punished them in the process? Like the amount of like, you know, I was one of the most fortunate people in that circumstance. And I and I say that as an innocent person who was wrongly accused and put in prison. <laughs> so, like, you know, it's it matters. We're all sort of implicated in the way that society um, limits the opportunities of people. And we should be mindful of that. Oh, absolutely. I feel like every time you talk to women who are in prison, it's it's like, oh, you were obviously coerced or like you are a, a survivor of domestic violence or trafficking. Like it is. Mm-hmm. And, and just I mean, I, I'm I'm 
this is such a, this is a long, a longer conversation, but I, I'm right there with you. I think like when you actually look at who we are locking up, sometimes for like just comically long amounts of time and the circumstances they came from, it's clear that we are not making our community safer. We are just spreading more harm. And I, yep. I'm right there with you. Yeah. Yeah. Well, it's it's a difficult thing to look at because I think a lot of us would just like to think, oh, we'll just put the bad people in somewhere else. We'll just take bad people and put them away. And it's like that's that's not it's not just good people and bad people. It's not just who gets put away versus who doesn't get put away is not doesn't also fall neatly along those lines. Like, let's be real. It's way more complicated than that. And and oftentimes it's actually just the most vulnerable people who end up get putting away. Amanda, where can folks keep up with Labyrinth and all the amazing work that you are doing? Well, thank you for asking. Um, you can go to knoxrobinson.com to follow all of the work that me and my husband do. We have a Patreon, so patreon.com slash knoxrobinson. Uh, you can follow me on Twitter at Amanda Knox and on Instagram at Knox. Got a story about an interesting thing in tech or just want to say hi? You can reach us at hello at tangody.com. You can also find transcripts for today's episode at tangody.com. There Are No Girls on the Internet was created by me, Bridget Todd. It's a production of iHeartRadio and Unboss Creative. Jonathan Strickland is our executive producer. Tari Harrison is our producer and sound engineer. Michael Amato is our contributing producer. I'm your host, Bridget Todd. If you want to help us grow, rate and review us on Apple Podcasts. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, check out the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, ladies, it's Bridget Todd here. As women, we put our hearts into everything. May is High Blood Pressure Education Month, and it's time to focus on our heart health. Release the Pressure wants to help Black women look at self-care as an act of self-preservation. During High Blood Pressure Education Month, let's help get to our goal of 100,000 Black women putting their hearts first and learn more about their heart health. Visit iHeartRadio.com RTP for a chance to receive a $1,000 gift card to take care of yourself and prioritize your heart health. That's iHeartRadio.com RTP. Happy Pride from Tomboy X. Celebrating pride and the queer community all year. Queer founded, queer run, and the makers of the original boxer briefs for women. Creating sustainable size and gender inclusive underwear, swimwear, and loungewear for all bodies so you feel comfortable in your own skin. Tomboy X just dropped their Pride 24 collection. Obsessively fit tested for all day comfort in sizes 3 extra small through 6X. Visit TomboyX.com. Looking for hair removal tools that not only deliver smooth results, but also empower you with a sense of complete control? Enter Conair Girlbomb, your secret weapons for smooth, sleek results made just for women. From the ultimate Girlbomb grip and professional grade blades, you don't have to compromise and settle for less. Conair Girlbomb equips you with the precision and power previously reserved for men's grooming tools. So take your hair removal routine to the next level with Conair Girl Bomb. Available at conairgirlbomb.com or a retailer near you.